This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. I have been talking quite a lot about union with Christ and the, the, the centrality of this, that it's by union with Christ that we experience the grace of God, that we draw close to God. This is the, the pattern, this is the, uh, the model, if you like, that uh, our faith is, is not simply uh, a, a belief in, in theories or, or something like this, but it's a relationship with a person, and of course that person uh, is unique. He's unique uh, because he is the Son of God, he is unique because he is a sinless man. Uh, he is unique because he rose from the dead uh, and has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts uh, to unite us to himself. So there are many things like this. And, uh, of course, our salvation, uh, our experience of God is very much tied up with this. In our union with him, he takes us uh, into himself uh, so that we can... Um, uh, participate uh, in his life and in his love. Now, central to this, and I've of course mentioned this as we, uh, at different points as we've gone along, um, is uh, what we call the atonement, reconciliation between God and man. The English word atonement was invented um, in the 16th century as a translation of the Latin word reconciliation. Of course, it has, acquired, it has acquired almost a meaning of its own, uh, you might say. It's a you know, different kind of um, word and has become a very central uh, question, really, in, um, uh, in theology. Uh, at many different levels, because at the heart of our faith, I mean, however you look at the, the cross on which Christ died, um, the, the Eucharist, the bread and, and, and wine poured out, which represent the body and blood of Christ, uh, you know, the, the body which was broken, the blood which was shed for us, um, our participation in this is our access uh, to the grace of God in Christ. I mean, this is something very central to our whole um, understanding of, of, of what being a Christian is, uh, and rightly so, of course, because uh, this is the key to our salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without um, the, the death of Christ and the, and the resurrection of Christ, there can be no entry into heaven. Um, why not? Uh, well, because uh, the present life that we live, the sinful life that we live, must be put to death. It must be uh, destroyed uh, in order for a new life uh, to come into being. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Um, you know, however you understand that, uh, it is uh, the key, really, that uh, the old life must pass away, the old Adam uh, must die so that the new man in Christ, uh, the, the, the person who has been, um, uh, who has died and risen with Christ, 
uh, comes uh, into being and uh, into fellowship with him. The question now is how is this understood? Uh, how are we going to um, uh, explain this in detail? Now in the early church, in the early centuries of Christianity, the death of Christ and its meaning, its significance, was understood primarily in the context of the incarnation. That is to say, of Christ coming into the world uh, in order to become a man. This was the key. The incarnation of Christ was the most fundamental uh, act of God. Because without this, none of the rest would have been possible. I mean, Jesus could, well, the Son of God could not have suffered and died on the cross if he had not become a man first. Um, you know, the resurrection would make no sense if there was no body. Um, so he could not simply have appeared like an angel or something like that and waved a wa magic wand and, and, and said, well, you know, now you're all saved. Um, it, I mean, I suppose he could have done that, but that wouldn't have been the same thing uh, as uh, the kind of salvation that we actually hear about and read about and, uh, uh, and understand from the scriptures. So this has to, be, um, has to be understood. We have to accept this to begin with. But there are still different ways of, uh, of expressing this. And as I say, in the early church, the emphasis was very much on the nature of the incarnation. Uh, what does it mean to say that the Son of God became a man uh, in Jesus Christ? How can you do this? Um, I mean, do you... Does the Son of God come into the world and take a body in a, as a kind of shell, you know, a kind of covering that he can wear, but inside uh, he's really God? Uh, you know, he's just sort of like wearing a wetsuit or something, um, you know, called the human body, uh, to protect him against, uh, you know, the, the, the corruptions of this world. Um, but he's not a real man in the true human sense of the, uh, of the term. And there were people who thought that, you know, people who, who had this kind of idea. There were also people, of course, who said, well, that's not possible. Jesus was a man, uh, but not God. Uh, he might have been closer to God than most people. He might have had a greater experience of God than most people, but he was not himself God. Uh, and that doesn't work either because if Jesus was just a man, I mean, however good uh, he, he may have been, uh, as we've already seen, um, there is no man uh, good enough um, to pay the price of sin. I mean, you can't do this. I mean, even, you know, even Jesus, as a man, by, if he was nothing more than that, um, uh, would have been unable to, to break the, the, the boundary, to break the barrier uh, between God and us. Um, I mean, Jesus could not give us uh, something that he did not have himself possess. So if Jesus was not seated at the right hand of God the Father, um, he could not put us at the right hand of God the Father either. I mean, he couldn't take us to that place because he was not in that place himself. The most he could do uh, perhaps would be to improve our human life 
but not give us eternal life in heaven uh, because he wouldn't have it himself. Um, you see, that's the, uh, the snag there. So the early Christians spent a lot of time trying to work out how, you, how he could be fully God and fully man at the same time. And the classic expression of this, the way in which the, the, this was worked out, uh, was devised by a fourth century church father called Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, which is a place uh, in Asia Minor, now in Turkey, uh, where he was bishop. He didn't come from there, uh, but that's where he ended up as bishop. And Gregory uh, wrote, what has not been assumed has not been healed. That's the phrase. What has not been assumed has not been healed. What does this mean? It means that if there is some aspect of humanity that Jesus did not have, then that aspect of humanity has not been saved because Jesus didn't have it. All right? And you say, well, what do you mean? Uh, well, uh, the, the argument, the, the real question, had to do with the mind and the soul and the will uh, 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 of a man. I mean, nobody was too bothered about the body uh, because that was obvious that Jesus had a body. But did he have a human mind? Did he have a human will? Did he have a human soul? What were these things? What are these things? And in trying to get to grips with this, you see the, the discussion uh, about this in terms of Jesus actually forced the people in the early church to think more closely about what makes up a human being. In other words, you and me. I mean, the discussion was about him, but the implications have to do with us. Because what does it mean to say that, what is my soul? What is my mind? What is my will? Where, what are these things? Where do they come from? Uh, where do they reside? What, what exactly are they? And slowly, it took a very long time, but people began to realize that what the ancient Greek world generally thought the pagan Greek world generally thought, was not what the Bible taught about the nature of humanity. And it is getting to grips with Jesus that forced the early church to rethink all of this. What am I saying? Well, in the ancient Greek world, generally speaking, most people believed that the soul, the human soul, was a, an element of divinity. That somehow or other, there was a divine reality, not a personal thing, just a, a divine being of some sort, in heaven, if you like, and the souls of men and women had detached themselves from this divine being. 
and had fallen away. The fall is, is, is equivalent to the, cre the creation and the fall are the same thing, in effect, because once the, the, this thing gets away from, the, from uh, God, or from the divine, this divine reality, falls into the world, into material reality, enters into a body where it is in effect trapped. Perhaps the best image, I, I gave you this actually yesterday, but I'll repeat it again. Uh, if you think of this divine reality as a kind of fire, and the souls are like sparks which fly uh, out of the fire, um, and then they fall, uh, you know, and as they fall, they cool off. They 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 lose the 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 heat and so on. And then they 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 become cold and hard, uh, and uh, and this is this is what the human being is. You see something that uh, has fallen away from the divine. Salvation, of course, in this context means going back into the fire. In other words, it's similar to Buddhism in this sense, that you have to be dissolved back into the source of your being, lose your identity. So you go back to where you started from. That's the, that's the pattern. Now, if you pick up the Bible, if you have this idea in your mind, and you pick up the Bible, and you read in the Bible about the body or the flesh, the soul and the spirit of a man, you are most likely going to think of the body or the flesh as one thing, the material thing, and the soul and the spirit as two different names for the same thing. You know, the spiritual element, the non-material element of the human being. And this is the way most people naturally thought. But along comes, comes the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, and, and Christian people, especially Jewish, people of Jewish background, and they say, that's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible teaches. That the biblical picture of a human being is not body on one side or the flesh on one side and then soul and spirit kind of mixed up together on the other side but rather body and soul together on the one side and spirit on the other. In other words, soul and spirit are divided. They're not two different names for the same thing. The soul in the Bible is the life force of the body. It's what makes the body alive. And... Um, it can die. You see, the Bible says quite clearly, the soul that sins, it shall die. Whereas, of course, in the Greek mind, the soul, because it's part of the divine being, cannot die. The soul is immortal. And even today, you see, the confusion continues because many Christians today will talk quite happily about your immortal soul. But strictly speaking, this is not a biblical idea. Because in the Bible, to say that to call someone carnal, that is of the flesh, and to call someone of the soul, 
there's no real word in English for this, but you know, of the soul, soul, a soul person, is synonymous. These, these two things are the same, and they mean cut off from God, unspiritual, in both cases. All right? The spirit, on the other hand, is something God-given. It is the thing which connects us with God. And is unique to human beings. You might, you, an animal has a soul, according to the Bible, because the word animal, anima, is the Latin word for soul. Of course, this causes problems for us because if we say animals have souls, we immediately tend to think, um, you know, that they're spiritual beings, that they're kind of like human beings. And, and this is not what the Bible says at all. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't draw that connection. Because what animals do not have is the relationship with God given by the spirit, the human spirit, uh, and which creates us in God's image and likeness. The whole idea of being created in the image and likeness of God, this does not apply to animals. But animals are, of course, living beings. I mean, they live and move, and you know, they, they run around. All right. This in itself is not perhaps terribly important until you start asking the question, well, does Jesus have a human soul? Did the Son of God, when he came into the world, did he, did he acquire a human soul? Now, if you think that spirit and soul are pretty much the same thing, you know, just different words for the same thing, then you will probably say no to that. Because you'll say, well, Jesus didn't have a human soul because he didn't need one. You know, he came with a spirit from God, with the spirit of God. The spirit of God could do everything in him and for him that the soul, the human soul does in us. Think, you know, will and all those things. So there's really nothing for a human soul in Jesus to do. There's no reason. He didn't need one. Now, you could argue he might have had one, but if he had one, what, you know, it was just sort of there like an appendix. It wasn't really necessary. Right? So this becomes a question, see, an issue. Does he have a human soul? And then, what is the human soul? You see, what, uh, what does the human soul possess that the spirit does not? What's the difference between these two things? Well, if I can put it crudely, and this is my way of putting it, not necessarily something you'd read in the early church fathers, but it, co it corresponds to the way they thought. If the something you are talking about can be destroyed or damaged in some way, then it belongs to the soul, the mind, for example. It is possible for the mind to be corrupted. It is possible to lose, you can, you can lose your mind. 
If you lose your mind, do you cease to be human? Well, in the early church, uh, that time, you know, in the early centuries of Christianity, lots of people would have answered yes to that question. Somebody who was mentally handicapped was regarded as subhuman and treated that way. You know, they weren't treated as full human beings because people just assumed there, there was something there that was missing, you know. Uh, so it was terrible, really. I mean, they could, people could be very cruel to them um, in, in that sense. But you can understand the, why they think this, because uh, they say, well, uh, the mind is not functioning, you see, in, 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 in this person. It's not a real human, you know. There's something wrong there. The Christian gospel, Bible, biblical point of view, cannot accept this. Because the, the human mind, like the human soul, belongs to the created material side of, 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 human, of, of the human being. So your, your mind can be faulty, you know, it, it, can, it can be defective one way or another. But that does not affect your spirit. It doesn't affect your identity as someone who is created in the image and likeness of God. So, you, you know, you have to make a real distinction here between these two things. When it comes to the will, again, does the will belong to the soul? Does the soul have a will? And the answer to this had to be yes, the soul does have a will, or the will belongs to the soul, human will is part of the soul. Why? Because again, it can be corrupted uh, and, uh, and malfunction. Uh, I mean, uh, to take a very simple example, you can be hypnotized. And if you're hypnotized, you do things against your will, you know, that you would never do if you, if you were in control of your will. But you appear to be willing it. You see what I mean. So the will can be uh, can be manipulated um, in that kind of way. To the fathers of the early church, this meant that the human will belongs to human nature, to the to the soul, uh, not to the spirit. It's how they would have interpreted this, right? Because it, it, it's 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 not. Uh, not immortal or eternal in that sense. Now, in Jesus, of course, this is very important because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done, you know, uh, when he's praying in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's clear from that statement that Jesus sees his will as different from the will of the Father. I mean, otherwise, that sentence wouldn't make any sense. And this has puzzled a lot of people over time because they say, well, how can there be one will in the Father, a different and potentially contradictory will in the Son? And the, the only answer to this, of course, is that the, 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 uh, the will of the Father is the divine will, which the Son also shares uh, in his divinity. And the will of, of the Son, uh, the will of Jesus, is his human will. And this is important because 
When Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done, he's not disobeying the Father. He's not revolting against the Father because he knows that he'd come into the world to die. I mean, he knows that this was what he was supposed to be doing. But affirming his humanity because it's not natural for a human being to want to die. If Jesus had had a death wish, he would not have been a normal, healthy human being. There would have been something wrong with his humanity. Right? And uh, so he has to be portrayed as someone who does not want to die. I mean, he knows he must die. Uh, he has been sent to die. But this is not because he has some uh, you know, perverted wish to die. Um, it's because he is submitting to the Father, submitting to the will of the Father, uh, that, uh, that this happens. So this is, this is very important uh, indeed. And these issues were fought out in the early church, you see, to say that there are two wills in Christ, uh, for example, not just one. Um, you know, that was a big argument, uh, and that was the conclusion uh, that they came to. But Gregory of Nazianzus uh, sort of leads into this because uh, he says, well, there has to be a human will in Christ. There has to be a human mind in Christ because if there, these things are not there, then our mind and our will are not saved. And if our mind and our will are not saved, what's the point of saving the body by itself? You know, if the motor inside, if the life force inside is not renewed as well. I mean, surely that's more important. And we would, of course, agree because, um, you know, your will can be submitted to God, your, your, uh, your mind can be submitted to God, you can have the mind of Christ, but your body carries on uh, more or less regardless. Um, you know, you can submit your body to Christ, I suppose, but what would that mean? Um, uh, you know, apart from avoiding uh, sins of various kinds. Um, I mean, your body doesn't have a relationship with God. It can't talk uh, uh, to God as such. And it just keeps getting older, um, you know, as, as you go along. So, I mean, it's a, it, 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 this is the way uh, you see that they, they look at this. But the Spirit, of course, is something else. The Spirit is given to us because the Spirit is the image and likeness of God uh, in us. And this is very important to the early church because when it came to the question of deciding how could Jesus be God and man at the same time, in the end, of course, they conclude that, well, in a way, that's also true of us. I mean, obviously, we're not God in the way that, the, that Jesus was God, but we have something of the divine in us, some divine element, which is the image and likeness of God, which gives us a connection to God uh, that other creatures do not have. And this connection to God is extremely important because if it weren't there, we would not be able to communicate with him and he would not be able to communicate with us. And so our salvation um, would again have a completely different uh, meaning. It wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't mean a relationship in eternity with God. What is more important is that the human spirit, the image and likeness of God in us, what we now would call the person, 
our personhood, is not only in relation to God, in relationship with God, you know, that's how we communicate with God, but it is immortal. It is this which is immortal. Because when, our, when we die, I mean, our will dies, our mind dies, our bodily functions die, our brain dies, you know, everything that is, is part of our material being dies, ceases to exist. But our identity, our personal identity as the image and likeness of God, our spiritual being, continues. It does not die. And of course, if we are in the right relationship with God in Christ, if we have been rescued, if we've been saved in Christ, then uh, we go to be with him. We are part of him. We belong to him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this. You see, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, so material being, our material being, cannot um, go to heaven like that. It, it must die uh, and be raised again in a, as a spiritual body, which will be different from the body that we have now. Paul explains this in great detail um, in 1 Corinthians 15. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.